program is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The views expressed are those of the panelists and not necessarily those of Sengents, Glamour Connection, Van Garrett Media, their respective management, contractors, or employees. This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media. Welcome to the Share Your Hotness Podcast. Share your hotness. Now, here's your host, Lita Green. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Share Your Hotness with your host, Lita Green, and my old friend that I've known forever, and she's already laughing, Shahar Hutchinson, and we're laughing. I said that wrong. Oh, you did it again. You did it again. Share. I did it again. (laughs) Hey, at least I'm phonetic. Yes, yes. Right? Okay. You want to introduce yourself? My name is Shara Hutchinson. Shara Hutchinson. I want to make it like, you know, exotic, but I don't know if I told you this, Shara. See, it's like, I'm saying it wrong still. No, no, no. That was great. Okay. Okay. You you laughed at me because I was being too intentional about it. Um, Shara, because see, I'm, I'm, I'm re-imprinting it, um, that I realized, so people in Utah, we have an accent and people are like, what? Because I don't sound like I have an accent right now. But if I were to say mountain as a mountain, right? I have an accent. So people in Utah swallow their teeth. And then I realized, because my name phonetically is Lita, that I should be saying Lita, but I say Lita. Lita. I pronounce my name like a Utah, but in my defense, I was named after a lady who had the name Lita. And that's how she said it, because where is she from? Utah. Oh, interesting. Right? So um, we have Utified my name my name so yeah my name i guess in utah utahian would be <laughs> shahara yeah it's shahara yeah and there's okay, no I'll key so thank no you but i'm gonna call you shara because we are dear old friends and when i was like we you we met through linkedin and we were joking about that and then we were like what how have we not met in person because we've shared so much and you have already been on the podcast and i was like oh my crap we've got to have you again and so if people are like wait a minute this has already happened that lita can't pronounce a lady's name <laughs> it happens more than once don't don't so but you dropped a little teaser to a story and i was like oh we got cuz your story that you came on before was for infertility yes but then you shared foster care and I, um, just want to hear this whole story. I want to hear it all. And I already know you're a pro. So just go into it. Sure. I will, I will go into, so yeah. entertain us or whatever. I, Enlighten yeah. us. But yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about my experience as a foster child, but what I want to do is correlate it to how being a foster child actually impacted me as an adult. Amen. Um, Bring it and on. how, and how I had to overcome some of the emotional barriers, right. That comes with being rejected with feeling as if you don't have family feeling as if people don't love you. Like all those feelings that come from being a a foster child sometimes uh, that can also be feelings that other people have from just regular, regular experiences. Right. But you are a speaker. 
and doing all the fun things. And yes. so we can't just tell a story and be like, wah, wah, wah. you know, you have to tell the hope. And so that's why it's even better to hear it from you because we get to know that the story turns out well. Yes. Yeah. So um, I was taken away from my parents when I was two years old. And, and where were you living at the time? Where was that? I don't know. I don't. Oh. So the thing is, I yeah. don't, I don't, I, well, I take that back. I was living in New Jersey. So that's where I was born. But as far as like where I was at, what was going on, I know that my biological parents were on drugs, but I don't remember that time. Right. Um, and record and so, wise, you don't know what state was taking you or was it? Well, I was in New Jersey. I was born in Rawway and, but they lived in different cities in New Jersey. So I don't know exactly which, which area, mm-hmm. which area I was in. I do know that when I was taken away, at two. I moved at two, I had moved with uh, like two or three families prior to them finding me a home that was going to be a little bit more permanent. And so when I got to my maybe third or fourth home, that was kind of semi-permanent, I actually uh, moved in with a lady and she was uh, almost 70 years old, taking in hey. me as like two, two or three years old uh, wow. and in her house, bless, she, her. bless her. Yes. She had um, three other girls that were in there that were older, older. I was the youngest. There was a set of twins. Uh, in the house and um their names were Veronica and Charlene uh, I still haven't I haven't seen them in years anyway I, think I and just then, discovered my better than having a cat, cat sanctuary plan <laughs> I could just take in foster kids if if my husband leaves me I tell him if he dies he's not going to leave me because of marriage issues but you know if he dies I'm turning this whole place into a cat sanctuary I think it would be a higher purpose even if I were old to maybe do foster care so yeah. I might be an 80 year old foster care mom, but I'm not going to take in toddlers. Cause if you can't lift it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was definitely a lot for her. And she was a, from what I remember, wow. she was a nice lady. However, her family, they were pretty mean to me. And I think in retrospect, they were mad because she was an, an older seasoned woman taking in like a toddler, you know? And so they would, say stuff to me they would do stuff to me and on one particular occasion I just I just don't understand why people can see someone who's been through some poop and think you know the best reaction to this is to add more poop on Mm -hmm. I just don't get it I just don't you know I don't I don't understand either and I also don't understand now mind you the lady who took me in first at that particular time that I'm referring to, she was nice, but she was also kind of sick and a little bit older and her family, you know, treated me bad, but there are foster parents who take kids in and then don't treat them right. And I'm like, why would you bring a kid into your home and not treat them like your child? I've heard this story from someone I love and it just, I had to like, literally like pray for Jesus to not have me drive over this lady's house and be like, what the poop was is wrong with you that you would take in these kids and say these things and do these things. And it was her business. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just like, how is the, there are some serious things going to be fixed in our foster care system to, but at the same time, I know this other lady who took in 20 kids. Wow. 20, not all at the same time. 
you know, but she's taken in 20 kids for a period of years Mm -hmm. over time. And, um, they're able to do that financially because there is, you know, some child support that comes with that child from the state and they're amazing. And their kids, it's like the United Nations and it's beautiful. And they all graduate from high school and most of them go on to college and their family picture is the cutest thing you've ever seen. It looks like, you know, it's just like this big, huge, beautiful, diverse family. And there's kids that like one that doesn't have an arm because it got caught off in a war zone. You know, I mean, like, Mm -hmm. you know, just amazing stories and they're all doing fantastic. And so I'm glad those are resources. So Mm -hmm. she can do that awesomeness. But this other lady who shall remain nameless, you know, hissing at her like an angry cat that, you know, does it solely for the money. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. It it happens. And sometimes, like I said, in my case, at this particular home, the the adopted mother was nice, but her family wasn't. And so one day I remember her, her sister who also lived in the house with us. And she was like, maybe like in her mid fifties and, um, she was washing my hair in the sink and she literally like tried to drown me in the sink. I remember her like, no, like back then they had like these little, you like three, four years old at this point. By this point I was probably about six and you know, those little sink pans that like, you can, like a plastic plan that you can fit inside the sink. So she had water like filled in there and just like literally was like dumping my head. She was waterboarding you. Yeah. She was water waterboarding me because she was upset. And, um, at that point I, and as a six-year-old, you know, I was fed up. I was tired of being treated that way. And I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to say something. Cause up to that point, I hadn't said anything to anybody about what was happening in the house. Okay. This is the savvy six-year-old. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm like, I am going to say something. So, um, even though I was adopted periodically children's services, which in New Jersey is called. Oh, so this 80 year old lady adopted you. Yes. And her crazy family. Yes. Okay. But they, so they would have like people come and visit and like check on you. They would check your body for bruises. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Good good thing. thing. Yeah. They would ask questions, all this stuff. So this particular time they came and usually when they would come, I would say like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. No problems. Even though they were rude to me. Well, this rude, time like, like trying to drown you rude. Yeah. That's so rude. That was the first time that they had done something like that was the drowning. It was uh-huh. more so like comments that they would make and just being mean and whooping me with different, uh, right. like belts and, and, um, high heel shoes and stuff like just all kind of stuff. Well, uh-huh. um, when I decided to say something, when, when the, when the children's services people came, I told them what had happened. I told them that the lady, you know, waterboarded me and tried to drown me. And I'm like, please don't say anything. Like, get me out of this house. And when they left, I thought that they weren't, that they were going to leave, go find me another home and pick me back up. Right. Like, so in my six-year-old mind, I'm thinking, yes, they're going to get me out of here. I'm going to, um, not going to be mistreated anymore. Not going to be abused anymore. And, you know, so I'm excited. So that evening, I began to like get, take my shower, do my nightly routine to get ready for bed. And as I'm in the tub, I get out of the tub and I'm soaking wet. And the lady, my foster adopted aunt comes in there like with a switch. And she's like, like just starts whooping me like while I'm soaking wet and there's welts like welting up on my skin and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. And I'm not screaming because 
she's hitting me. I'm screaming because as she's hitting me, she's telling me like, you know, those parents that don't say like, didn't I tell you like they're talking while, while they're, while you're getting whooped. Well, she was talking while she was doing that, telling me like, why did I, you know, share that information with the children's services? And I was upset and crying and screaming because my trust from a state of euphoria. Yeah. I'm going to, it's going to be better to I'm stuck. Yep. I'm that's exactly what I'm, I'm stuck. And I was betrayed. Yeah. So I feel like the one time that I decide to open up, the one time that I share what's really happening, the one time that I break out of the barrier of myself and my fear of what's going to happen and, and reach out for help, that happens. And at that moment, um, I remember making a like inner, inner vow to myself where I said, you know what? I can't trust anybody. Oh. Not I'm not telling anybody anything. Uh, then I said, you know what? I don't need anybody. I'm okay. Um, and I'm going to prove to the world, to people that I don't need anybody. Um, and as I shared that, I guess, like inner vow with myself, somehow it brought about what I thought was a little healing or like, I just felt like, you know what? I'm going to protect myself. And I started saying, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Mm. Um, and so then when I would go to school, I would get in I trouble care. or I would get yelled at, I would get in trouble. And I'm like, I don't care. None of it bothers me. And literally you can tell yourself something so much that you believe it. Mm-hmm. So then even though I would have relationships and friends growing up, I would only allow people to get so close to me Yeah, because there was a wall and a barrier that was up that prevented me from getting too close. And it came from the inner vow that I made to myself as a little girl. So then as I grew up and became an adult, right? Like being an adult, but still holding on to an inner vow. Have you ever like, let's just say you got fed up with something. You're like, you know what? That's it. No more. Or yeah. Well, I, I think any human, if yeah. they're honest, right. Has had experiences um, you know, all of, we all have a, a path we have to overcome. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, when I meet people who've never had a hard time, I'm like, just get ready, just get ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it's, but even if it's somebody who's, let's just say they they're on their weight loss journey and they get fed up and they're like, you know what, this is it from now on out, I'm going to be making a healthy, healthy food choices or whatever. Yeah. So you're talking about like where the attic kicks rock bottom you know, or the person's like, this is my moment and everything switches for them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think everybody has those moments, but there are moments I believe that you have as a child that kind of define your attitude and your persona that you carry with you to adulthood. And sometimes you have to shed that off in order to get past a certain point. Oh yeah. And so totally. Yeah, I had lived that way for years as an adult and it really, at what age, what age were you at when you say, what age are you at? All all the way up until probably five years ago, maybe like I still had a wall up where, so because you're black, we don't know if you're 16 or 60 because y'all don't age. Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) you are so funny, Lita. It's true. (laughs) It's true. And that's why I tell people, I know, have you heard my joke about this? No. Okay. Cause I'm like, I think I'm hilarious. 
you know where racism comes from where does it come from it's all these white people being jealous how well y'all age (laughs) (laughs) right and it's always funny because black people always laugh with me like girl i can't believe that and white people go you can't you can't say that (laughs) you know and i'm like yeah it's funny you know y'all look great so as a makeup artist you know i love color but how old how old were you at this point because i want to give like a an age thing here so i was probably let me see was it five years ago see i'm digging in yeah well i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to think because when i think of the timeline right i when you grow and develop and you change it's not something that happens overnight, right? So you can't always, right. yeah, you can't always pinpoint like, oh, this was the exact moment that I changed. You can say, I started to change here, but I noticed something different. Mm-hmm. And really yeah. along the eight year journey of going through infertility is when I started to evolve. Because yeah, and isn't that funny how really hard things, uh, make us confront some of these untended areas of our lives right and how trial becomes a gift because it makes you know us put more poop in our garden (laughs) you know to like fertilize what becomes right so let's say you were like 23 when you started would that feel about right no (laughs) so I was probably I was (laughs) I I have to go back to the story so we got to get an age here but we also have to figure out did you stay in that home that whole time? Oh, so I need to, re- I need to rewind. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the, so, okay, so give, us a, give us an age for Let, those that well, have ADD. In, that, oh, okay. So it. an age for the home, not as in the, so, okay. I was, no, but I, I'm, how I'm I went left the, field. I'm asking two things. One, the age that you started having this awakening, because you said okay. you carried this, yes. I don't care attitude into my adult life. Yes. And that you started having an awakening around what age? I would say it started as a, as a teenager, maybe okay. like, okay. So now you've 20, been about 20, 21. So probably, I was so close. Yeah. So probably <laughs> I started having an awakening probably at like 20 or 21, but I'm going to rewind. Cause you, you asked that right. question, which is sparked. interesting. It's at 2021 because that is when our brains start. If we, those of us that didn't grow up with cell phones, which is mm-hmm. you and I, um, our brain started solidifying, meaning things start to come into focus a little bit because our frontal cortex is no longer. So what I feel in the moment, like I joke Romeo and Juliet, you know, the reason that they, you know, they died, you know, is because they were teenagers and they thought, you know, this moment that I'm feeling forever less and all they also didn't listen to their parents, you know, like I make all these jokes about it. Right. But it's interesting that that is kind of the age that it happened because that's when we start kind of coming into putting these life lessons together, but you're six years old. Let's take you back to that girl. Six years old, you've been betrayed. You come up with a coping skill, which anyone who's been abused, the particular abuse that I had to face was being sexually molested. Definitely came up with some coping skills. Mm -hmm. Um, Those aren't always healthy being formatted by a kid, but man, the six-year-old kid, Mm -hmm. I don't care. I don't care. Did you get removed from that home ever? Eventually, eventually the adopted mom passed away. So then when she passed away, I moved next door with her son and his wife Aww. for like until they could find me another home. But and were so they, they nice? They were 
I mean, they weren't mean, but they weren't, I mean, they were just like, you're just here temporarily type of thing. You know, that wasn't like, even though you were legally adopted and legally family. Yes. Um, they weren't too thrilled legal action to make you family because we're all you know we're all family but yeah I get yeah yeah so after that they after they I stayed there until they found me another home so I moved in with this other couple and then it was me and there they had one two three three other foster children who were all related as well and then their granddaughter was also kind of staying there on and off. And in that home, I felt like it was, it was me and then them with their family. So mm. even in the, in that last home, I felt that way. And this, this home, I felt that way. Um, and they weren't necessarily what happened to the lady who beat you. I don't know. I mean, I, you don't care. Yeah. Don't care. And she kept, I mean, she kept doing, she's that. long. I'm sure she's long gone now, but I would love to see her one day, like, uh, probably about 10 years ago, I was in New Jersey and I, I remember, I still remember the address that I lived at. And I tried to ride past there to see like, if it, you know, if any of the same people uh-huh. live there and they don't, uh, cause I, I was just curious to see like, Hey, you treated me this way. And I turned out all right, you know? Yeah. But I didn't, well, I didn't see her but because of the timeline of everything. She's, you know, probably living with Jesus now. And so you get to talk, you get to tell her now. Yeah either living with him or somewhere else uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know I don't, I don't know i don't I, I have nowhere to put her i have no nowhere nowhere to put her i can't say where she's at but um hopefully no, and, and we don't we don't have to yeah you know, that's hopefully our she, job. yeah and hopefully she um because no excuse for her but if people hurt people it's because they they have something wrong with them and so hopefully yeah she experienced some healing and confronted whatever was going on in the inside of her that would cause her to abuse a child. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, you know, in the Bible, it says it's better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you're thrown to the depths of the sea, you know, to hurt a mm-hmm. child. So, you know, God's not a real big fan, but he's yeah. the one that's able to take the, the compassion in of, of what's happened. But again, mm-hmm. no excuse. Right. Right. It's not, there are lots of people who've been abused as children who don't abuse, abuse children. Mm -hmm. It's true. You know? So it's like, okay, we can have grace and compassion, but I'm with you. It's poopy pants. So I love how you just kind of laugh at me. Like, "Mm -hmm." yeah, poopy pants. I was thinking another word. (laughs) Nope. I wasn't thinking another word. Um, I was just gathering my thoughts so I can make sure I can, because I get distracted. So then I'm like, hmm, where did I leave off at? What was this? That's me. It's my fault. <laughs> if so, I just let you tell the story. No, yeah. I like that. This is good. I just, when I make that face where I say, hmm, I'm putting a um, a bookmark in my brain. So I'm right. like, all right, bookmark right there. So that when, when you finish with this side conversation, pick back up because then like I did earlier when I didn't answer your question and then I went all around in circles. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were just being so evasive. I mean, come on. All right. Okay. So you're living with this family that is technically your legal family, but they're just trying to get rid of you because the lady who loved you or who was willing was to gone. take you on was gone. Yeah. Was she loving and sweet? You said she, she was, was right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was, okay. she was loving and sweet from what I remember. Um, and 
I lived with her son and his wife for a little while until they found me a different home. So and how old were you at that point? By that point, I probably was like 10, I'm imagining. Yeah. And I'm just taking wild guesses here. So four so, more years of being um, in a situation where you're not safe. Yeah. So, so 10, and then I moved in with the other family. I was probably around 10-ish at that point. And that family kept me until I was probably 12. I think I was 12. Yeah, I was 12. So they, cause you've been legally adopted by this other family. So but when she passed they- away, when, when, when an adopted parent passes away, now you're back being ward of the state, even though the family, even though I was legally adopted into the family, the person who adopted me was no longer living and so the relatives didn't have any obligation to keep me. Now, if they wow. wanted, if they wanted to, they could have, but they didn't want to. Wow. Wow. Which I'm glad. I'm glad they didn't want to. Well, yeah, it, but it's, it's, um, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around how crazy that is because you're legally family, but where else in other family, unless you abuse someone, you have the recourse to be like, well, but not really family. Which really says a lot about how does that feel to a kid to be like, we'll be here for this person, but we're not going to be really be there for you. Mm -hmm. You've been cast off by this family. Are you processing how stinky that is? Or are you just relieved to get out? I don't know. I don't, I I think I was indifferent and, and maybe it was because I felt like I didn't care. Like, so I don't, Back I don't, to your childhood mantra. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know that I felt much of anything except for, all right, here's another change. You know, when, when you've been moved around from home to home to home and you always felt like you were an outsider in someone else's family, a new family is the same old feeling. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's, that's kind of huh. how it was where I was just like, oh, a new family. And so then when I was living with this, the family, the, the family that I'm talking about, um, after staying there for about a year and a half or two years, I met, so my biological father um, found me. So because, so I he wasn't- has no legal custody at this point. No, he didn't have any legal custody, but he found me because now my records were back open. Your records are sealed when you're adopted, but when if your adopted parent passes away, then now your records are back open, and so that your legal or or biological parents rather could can find you if they want to. And so, uh, my biological father did find me. Now, mind you, I was taken away from him because he was on drugs. But is he clean at this point? So at the time, he was not. And so, uh-huh. what happened though? He had gotten to a accident where he was his the the vehicle that he was in got hit by a semi truck or something like that. And the craziest thing was he was in the back seat. They picked up a hitchhiker and he scooted over in the middle or on the other side. Truck hits them, hitchhiker dies, who was sitting where he was sitting at. And his whole right side, he had to get his like face kind of redone he's got a like metal hip rods in his elbow like his whole right side and so he ended up getting now mind you he's a drug addict but he got a quarter of a million dollars from this accident 
And so all of his children have been taken away from him. And so even though he was still on heroin in his mind, he's like, I'm going to get my kids. And so he well, started- love is love. I mean, that's yeah. the sad thing is drugs make people make some really bad choices. Yes. And so we're glad that children aren't always kept in that environment, but he still loved you guys. He just loved drugs. Yeah. And he just wasn't, he wasn't in, he didn't have the emotional capacity to, to handle us or raise us. And so, right. but because he had money, he was able to pay for attorneys and come to meetings and be like as high as a kite and like still be like money allows you to be able to do whatever money it is allows you, you privileges. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, and so they ended up letting him get custody of me and my, and two of my biological brothers. And how so, many biological siblings do you have with him? Um, four. Four. Okay. So two of them, uh, he, he had gotten first and then he got me the other one who is like right underneath me in age, he was adopted at birth because our birth mother, um, had him while she was in jail and he was taken immediately from the jail and adopted out to a family similar to the family that you were talking about the multiracial family. So he, you know, his, 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 both of his parents were Caucasian that raised him, that adopted him. And they had like 12 kids in the house. They had a kid, I think with down syndrome, they had black kids, white kids, all kinds of kids. Like they kids just didn't care. They wanted kids. They didn't care. Yeah. And, and so they raised him and they treated him very nice. Um, and so his records were sealed at that time. And so and he's in a good situation. Yeah. He was in a good situation. Yep. So, um, but so my biological father got me and he got my other two brothers. And so I was actually able to move with him. But as I mentioned, he was still on heroin, even though they allowed him to get me. I don't know. They did not do a drug test or what. I don't know what they did, but he was able to get me. Money Money is a, money's a thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so after he got me, he was still on drugs. He had, he actually had the drug dealers living in the house with us in the basement. Well, that was good. Cause he had money. He had money. They were, he had the whole basement remodeled for the drug dealers to live down there. And that like, they were like walk upstairs, like giving him whatever, like it, he was just, it was crazy. So, so. <laughs> it was crazy. It's just, you know, it's like, who are these people? Well, you got to keep your drug dealer close, you yeah. know? Oh my heavens. Did they pay rent? <laughs> oh, they paid rent. I'm sure. <laughs> in, in, in kind. In, in kind. Yeah. I don't know what they were doing. Oh my but, heavens. Um, Crazy. But yeah. You can't make this stuff up. No, it was it, so. And it was so crazy that even the police raided our house one day and I was holding like my little cousin who was a baby at the time. And like, they came in with guns pointed, like, and all I heard was toilets flushing because they were flushing all the stuff. <laughs> it was like the movies it was literally like yeah the i was about to say like the it, only reason i would know you know the fl- i'm like yeah that's what they do in the show i mean i've, I've never been it was uh, real I mean, yeah, yeah i mean yeah i i've i've never known how to properly dispose of my drugs but because of movies and and your um witness that it works right it, it, it works <laughs> because they didn't find anything so i'm like okay yeah that's that works Um, and so that happened. And then he and I got into an argument and he kicked me out of the house at 13. So then I was homeless. So I was in West Virginia. So we moved from new, 
I was in New Jersey and then he was in West Virginia. And so when he got custody of me, he moved me from New Jersey to West Virginia with him. And, and you're 13 years old and you, what town are we in? Beckley, Beckley, West Virginia. And so like, I'm just, I like, don't know. Is this bad, bad streets of Beckley or is this like, it's, it's like, it's a small town, very, there's nothing to do there. Nothing to do in Beckley. I mean, the population is probably like, let me think of a small town in Ohio. I don't know. Right. Small town. Okay. Very, very small town. At least it wasn't the think about this. Everybody knows, everybody knows everybody. So okay, like so that can be good or bad. Yeah. Every, everybody knows everybody. There's nothing to do. Hardly no jobs. But at any rate, I was there. You're was homeless like, at 13. Yeah. Homeless at 13. And then my, uh, I call her my aunt, but she's really my cousin. Cause she's oldest to be my aunt. But anyway, that's right, right. the story. Who I had met like maybe once or twice who came and visited and this is your biological aunt. Yes. Your sister, your dad's sister. Well, she was, she's my, co- she's my cousin, but I call her my aunt. So she's my oh, dad's it. cousin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, dad's- but at the time I'm a teenager and she's probably like in her mid thirties. And so like, I feel like, okay, she's my aunt. It's hard. Right. Like so that, in my mind, I was like, so yeah. So she came to visit from Columbus to West Virginia and she was asking my biological father, like, well, where is your daughter at? And he couldn't tell her. He was like so high. Well, the town was so small. She rode around and rode around. And somehow, by the grace of God, she found me. Right. And this is why it's good you weren't in Chicago. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. so she. And how many days, like, were you just like living it was, behind? It was, like, it was probably the, like the Motel 8 or what? I mean, no, I mean, I, I found friends house to live at, you know, different okay. people's houses. Yeah. But that's not a permanent situation. No. no and why no. didn't anyone call the, Hey kid, you know? Uh, yeah. Right? No, I mean, I guess nobody, nobody knew. And you didn't care because you wouldn't probably give an information either. You wouldn't have been like, yeah, they're hiding drugs. The drug dealers in the basement. You just have to be yeah. like, I don't care. I don't care. I'm hungry. Right. Um, I guess so. I mean, I'm just trying to think like if some kid, one of my sons brought over a friend and she's mm -hmm. like, yeah, my dad's high. Uh, I got kicked out of the house. I'd be like, I need to find you a better situation. Yeah. Some of it really is a blur to me. I think the, I don't want to say it's weird, but there are mental blocks sometimes at parts of my childhood where I literally don't remember probably because I pushed it out of my mind. So I can't remember parts of like, oh, how did you feel in that moment? Well, and you weren't looking at it from where we are right now. We're looking right. at it from an adult perspective. You were just like a kid. I was in survival and- mode. So whatever I needed to do to survive, that's that was me. Right. Um, and so yeah. if I felt anything, it was like, I, I I need to survive and I don't need anybody and I will figure it out. So that if, if, if I felt anything, that's what I felt. Yeah. Well, my cousin slash aunt came to where I lived and somehow convinced me to move with her to Columbus after I had only met her like mm, once, once, maybe twice. Now, mind you, I'm 13 because I, I was out there probably about six or six to eight months, like with nowhere to go, really. Uh-huh. And but I was an adult trapped in a 13 year old body because I had been doing whatever I wanted to do. So when I moved right. with her, I was 
like I said, an adult, I mean, like she couldn't tell me. And, and I, I had an attitude. I was getting in trouble at school. Like I was a handful. Right. Um, well, and good for her for getting you in a safe place. She, she was, she was trying to do a good thing. Yeah. So, yeah. I definitely so was blessings a handful. on her, you know, yep. Ble- blessings on her. And she also took me to church when I moved with her. And so that was something that I appreciate because it gave me another perspective. It gave me a sense of hope, like just hear it, hearing those positive words that were taught. It was, it did something on the inside of me that made me feel like there's a greater purpose in life. Like things mm-hmm. don't have to always be the way they were and that you can have better. And so yeah. like, that was like a seed, I'll say like, that was kind of planted on the inside of me. And so by this time I'm, I'm 14, 15, 16 living with her. And then I get in in trouble. Like by the time I was 17, I was like, just doing my own thing. So she had to put me out. (laughs) And so she put me out. Are you saying you did not do the dishes on time? No, I was just doing whatever. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. Well, and and I was just doing, I was staying out. I was not coming home. I was just acting out. I was, I was in trouble. I was rebellious, everything. She's like, it's Uh, time for some tough love. Time for some tough love, which was the best thing that probably could have happened to me. Isn't that interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So where did you go? You're 17. You got an attitude. You don't care. Got my, yeah, got, got my own place with a friend and good. um, Then I learned about paying bills. Like, oh, like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> every month, every month yeah. you got to pay for this. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So and how are you supporting yourself? What, what uh, work were you doing? I was working at a fast food restaurant, but yeah. you're also in high school. Yes. And by that time I was just about to graduate. So, okay. um, okay. at 17, I actually, and you I were graduated. a straight A student too, right? I actually was. Oh, I yeah. love this. I yeah, was actually, like, so yeah, you actually, were, actually was like, except, except for my senior year. So that okay. senior year, when I went a little buck wild, my grades got a little bit squirrely. And but I love that you had, even though you like had this, I don't care. You still had a certain amount of self-preservation to show up for your life in a certain way to get good grades. Well, it was more like, I don't care what people do, but I'm going to prove that I don't need anybody and that I'm good. Like, so you're not like, I I will overperform. And I, I caught on to things very fast. So like I could, you're smarty pants. You're smart. Yeah. I mean, so like I will be in class and I would catch on to get my work finished. And then I would play and get in trouble in class. And the teacher would be like, you know, you need to do this. And I'm like, I'm done. But a lot and, of times they say that kids that, you know, kind of have that attitude and all of that are smart, mm-hmm. you know, that they have a lot of intelligence and know how to kind of um, work the situation to their favor. Yep. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so that's what I did. Um, so where did I leave off at? Um, I was uh, excited that you were a straight A student. You were oh, working, yeah. <laughs> uh, you were fast food restaurant. Fast food restaurant. And so then I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward up to the point where, so now I'm still growing up. I, I turn 18 and 10 years down the road, 20, 20, 28. And 
probably around then was it around then so i got married to my husband at 26 26 27 somewhere around there and a few years after that is when we were trying to con- where we where i found out that my tubes were blocked and where i couldn't conceive and then which all the other the story that i gave you about the infertility and the losses and all that but right. during that time of loss when we lost the baby in the second trimester, that is when it, I hit my emotional rock bottom and the wall that I had up kind of came down. And it was almost like a met- metaphorically speaking, kind of like drowning in emotion. So at one point I'm drowning at as a six-year-old in the sink, right? And I make this declaration to myself. And on the other hand, I am drowning as an adult and it took me back to childhood. And I thought to myself, why is everything so hard for me ever since I was a child? Like, so I I just started thinking about my whole life at that moment where I couldn't explain, I couldn't understand why my life had to be the way that it was. Mm. And I remember one day. Okay. So let me just make sure I'm getting this. You've just had this incredible loss. And your mind goes, one more, why? One more yes. loss, one more devastation, mm-hmm. why? So really you were asking like the big question, what's the purpose of life, right? Like for me. I don't know if I was asking that question. I was asking, why does it have to be so hard for me? Why yeah. does it appear that I have to work 10 times harder for something that others seem to get so easy. And even if it's not easy for them, if the perception is that it's harder for me, but I mean, that I think was my it, perception. It's a fair question. You've yeah. gone through not having a stable home life. And now you're not getting this thing of being able to have a kid. It's, it's a fair question. Why, why does it have always be so hard? Yeah. So that, that was the question. Why does, and I remember asking that question. Then, then I started thinking about just child and I, and the awkward thing is I started thinking about like, why don't I want anybody to support me? Because people were reaching out to me trying to like, um, are you okay? All this stuff. Cause they saw me with my belly and my maternity clothes and all this stuff. And so I shut myself out from the world. But then when I began to ask those why questions, I also said, why is it but I don't want anybody to comfort me at this time, even though I'm at my lowest of low. And what came to me is because I don't know how to comfort other people. And that was my kind of, when had you received, I mean, you shared in your other thing that you and your husband have a happy marriage, but when in your, the development of who you were as a child ever received comforting, Exactly. And, and I didn't know how to receive it and be secure. So you don't know how to give it because you didn't get it. And we can only give what we know. Exactly. And so I, I, I came to that realization and I was like, wow, I don't know how to comfort people. And I'm like, and I don't even care if anybody comforts me, but what, why is that healthy? And I start, I, I went down this whole <laughs> rabbit hole of like psychoanalyzing myself. And I said, you know what? I need to talk to somebody. And so I scheduled an appointment with like a therapist and I just, I wanted to sort through those thoughts because it was probably one of the most sober times, even though I had been on a, uh, I guess an evolution path 
of changing and becoming who I was destined to be since I was probably about 20, I was beginning to be like that situation caused me to be more aware about why I am the way I am. And after talking to the lady, I talked to her probably about twice. And it's so funny because she's talking to me, but I'm doing most of the talking. And as I'm talking, I'm talking myself through this, like, okay, so now, cause I had already started counseling myself anyway, when I realized that I didn't like, to, that I didn't know how to comfort people. And I'm like, so here's the thing, here's what <laughs> in, in my classic, like I got this self. I'm like, yep. So here's the thing, because of what happened to me back then, I don't know how to comfort people and I don't accept. And so she's just like listening to me, letting me then. And so sounds like a great therapist. She just let you process in a yeah, safe me, place. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, let me process. And so the, by the second meeting, I had figured it out in my mind. I'm like, okay, what I need to do is make some new declarations because what I'm doing is living off of the old declarations that protected me when I was six. Mm-hmm. And I don't need those. I do need people. I do need to know how to comfort people. I don't need to always say that everything's okay. And it is okay to not be okay. It's okay to say today's not a good day because up to that point, if you ever asked me, you would never know anything was wrong with me because I'm like, I'm good. I am good. Right. I don't need good. nobody like yeah, you were saying. Yeah, exactly. And so I realized, no, people need to see, they need to, sometimes people need to see you not doing good or see you in a vulnerable state so that when they see you in your triumphant state, they realize that it's not magic. They realize that if you made it, that they can too. And so people had this perception of me like nothing bothers you. And it wasn't that nothing bothered me. It was that I told myself I didn't care. And even though those feelings protected me for so long, they prevented me from really having close relationships, real close relationships um, as an adult. And really... the spiritual sense, like even prevented me from getting as close to God as I wanted to get like, right. Like, so if you have a wall up on your heart, that wall, um, prevents anything from getting or not getting too close. Yeah. So I, I said to myself some new things. I was like, you know what? Um, my truth and the truth are not always the same thing (laughs) because yeah. That's a question that every human has to kind of come to a place on. I really identify with this because I went through something similar with, you know, how to overcome abuse and how to mm -hmm. let, you know, dating relationships progress. Mm -hmm. And so I came across very much like Lita Mon, (laughs) which was my name at the time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and because that was literally my name. Why did I I just get it? It took me... (laughs) Right. So, but I came across like, you know, a little bit of a flirt. Cause I, I was charming enough to get you to like me, mm-hmm. but I was scared enough to not let you get too close. But of course mm-hmm. it didn't project that way because I was afraid of, you know, I'd been hurt really bad. So I'm identifying a lot with this. And so the question is not only did you not get close to God, you were married. He's grieving at the loss of this. How is this awareness changing the dynamic in your marriage? Because he married someone that's, I got it. I'm together. I don't really need you. I just want you. I'm assuming. To- yeah, no, so I wasn't very expressive, but he, that, that's why it's important to have a, a, a good spouse that kind of matches you. That's kind of your opposite in a way. So mm-hmm. he super, 
super calm, super chill. And even like, I remember one day, um, I was going through an emotional roller coaster after the loss and he said something to me and I like snapped on him. Like, I don't even remember what I said. And he looked at me and he hugged me and he was like, I know what this is about. And at that moment, marry that man. <laughs> yeah, well, we already married. Right. Time, but I'm yeah. just saying, if you yeah. had, you'd yeah. be like, I'm marrying yeah. you again because you're yeah. prickly. And he's like, I get it. Yeah. And he said, and so he looked past my response and saw what was really ailing me. And him being able to do that was also a part of my healing process. And so mm-hmm. he, he would do things like that. Oh, like, so there was one time I wanted him to buy me. So he, he like budgets everything. I mean, when I say everything, I mean, every single penny, he will not spend $2 that he did not plan to spend. And so he, wait a minute, is my hub, husband a polygamist and you're his other wife? <laughs> <laughs> he does That's not a Utah joke. Really? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. So your husband's you know the same way? It. He's the same no, way. Yeah, he's probably the same way. But my yeah. joke, you know how people they're like, oh, people from Utah, like, how many spouses does your husband have? And I'm like, I'm too much to handle, you know, but we don't really do that. Um, so yeah, my husband's the same way. He used to spend hours figuring out where the 50 cents that we couldn't reconcile and quicken was. That is and what he does. He got to a certain amount of money where he's let it go, but the software's gotten better. So yeah, he goes back and reconciles it. every Every, mm-hmm. every penny, he even plans a year in advance, like, all right, birthday, Christmas, whatever holiday, but like what he's going to spend on each of those holidays. So this particular year, um, he had um, planned to spend a certain amount on my birthday, but the Apple watch came out and I was like, I want an Apple watch. Well, I hadn't told him when he did his budget. And so he said to me, um, when I, when I brought up the Apple watch, he was like, oh, well, I didn't budget for that. Well, even he wasn't telling me he wasn't going to buy it. He was just making a statement like he didn't budget. And before he can get another sentence out, um, I immediately said, I don't need you to buy it for me. I can buy it myself because I, in my mind, I was thinking that, okay, he's going to tell me that he's, he's not going to buy it for me. And so before he can say that, I'm going to let him know that I don't need him to buy it. So he looked at me and he said, I know you can buy it yourself, but if you buy it yourself, it's not going to have the same meaning as it will have if I buy it. And he said, I wasn't telling you that I wouldn't buy it. I was just saying I didn't budget for that. And I didn't know that you wanted the Apple watch. And he did buy it for me. But even and little things like that. going through the steps and you were yes. responding emotionally. Exactly. Yeah. And so even things like that, with him responding to me in those ways, it helped me to see the areas that I needed to um, smooth out, the rough areas of my life that I needed to smooth out that mm. was trying to protect myself. Yeah. And so all along, he's been like, he's always helped bring out a softer side of me. Um, but other people really didn't get that close to me. And mm-hmm. so. Wow. That yeah. was, that was great that you married someone like him instead of someone like your dad, you know, cause you know how they always say girls marry people like their dads. It mm-hmm. sounds like you went and found the, the, I mean, maybe your dad had he not gotten into drugs and all that kind of stuff could have been very different, you know, but it's awesome. You didn't repeat that pattern of marrying someone that was an addiction. Yeah. Well, and I have a, so I have my biological dad and then I ended up getting adopted again, which we didn't get to that. At part, 17. But, 
so yeah so after 17 and so like um I guess I married somebody like the dad that I have now but I do also have relationship with my biological father now he last year he got clean so well, he good is for actually him. yeah he's actually he's actually clean now but in in all of that and everything that I've experienced in my life I would not trade anything I feel like everything that I experienced has shaped me into the person that I am today. And well, I want to hear how you got adopted. That's a whole nother story. That's a long story. So. <laughs> you're, you're angling to be on for the third time. <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole nother long, like literally a whole nother long story. I know that we've been on for a while, so I don't want to like, it is a long story. Well, yay. That, I mean, and, and the story keeps going, but I love what you're saying about how you wouldn't change it. And um, behind people who can't, can't see you because this is audible, but you have this little thing that says you can end of story. Oh, yeah. And yes. I love that because it's almost like this girl that has that attitude of, you know, I don't care and I can do it myself. And then, but this turning all of that into a strength of you can, you can mm-hmm. overcome whatever you have to mm-hmm. don't make your excuses that you've gone beyond, not just making not just like, I'm not making excuses, but embracing these hard, terrible things that, you know, society tells us these kids can't ever be okay. And it's such a conversation we're having in our society right now. It's so powerful. And what a voice you have Mm -hmm. of being able to say, don't ever tell someone they can't, right? Don't ever tell someone that they are not possible. And I love that you're doing that and in your infertility work and the story you're telling today, you know, that is so powerful because, you know, you can't look at somebody and say, because of where you are, you're never going to be this, or you're never going to accomplish this. You never, you just don't know where somebody will end up. And so even being able to be a positive influence on people's lives, you don't know, like, just because you say something to them and give them advice and they don't listen, that seed is planted. And when the right time happens, it'll spring back up and they'll remember what you said in a tough time or different. Cause there, there were people when I was getting in trouble and doing all the things I was doing, who were saying things to me, like to give me advice or tell me what I needed to do. And I didn't want to listen, but I still filed those thoughts away in the back of my mind. And those are some of the things that guide me today. So just because it seems like somebody's not listening or teenagers not listening, doesn't mean they didn't hear you. Right. Right. Yeah. I love that. And it's, I just, this, it makes me so sad when they talk about people like a statistic. And even though those statistics can be revelatory to what some of the dangers they face, you know, like being a, you know, a victim of being molested from two and a half to 14, um, you know, being in foster care, right. Being beaten, all these, you know, your dad being an addict, your mom being an addict. I mean, all of these things should have said statistically, you can't make it. And yet again and again, you hear stories like you, that people overcame the odds and you not only overcame the odds, but you're reaching back and saying, you can. Yep. I and love I, that. And I'll say the, the one word that I believe that changed my life is exposure. And it, depending on what you're exposed to, it can determine where your life goes. So when I was exposed to drugs and violence and all this stuff, my life was headed down a whole different path. But then I was exposed to positive people, 
exposed to God, exposed to um, people who were in business and exposed to, you know, just people with healthy relationships that showed me that something else was possible. Mm. So I think sometimes just getting into a different environment can change your entire life. And, and the company that I started is actually called exposure for that reason, because, I love that. because even in business, right? Like the only way that I've developed and grown in business is being exposed to new ideas, new information and all of that. And so like exposure has changed my life in all kinds of ways. Yeah. I, um, I was listening to this thing about voting in um, certain areas of the country that they say they really care about this demographic of the poor but yet when it comes to voting, they vote to not have, you know, the high density housing in their neighborhood. They vote to have their school districts be very exclusive. So it looks like in that state that these kids are getting high funding, but it's really dispersed so unevenly. And I have never occurred to me because where I grew up in, we have these huge school districts and it's like, you know, this is the mm-hmm. school district, you know, and it incorporates the, the lower median areas. They're getting the same funding as you know, the higher income areas. Um, but then a lot of these areas that, and the quote was said that they were voting against their ideals. And I was like, Ooh, where in my life am I voting or showing up or treating someone like less than my, you know, stated ideals. Mm-hmm. Right. And like two days later, I'm at a precinct meeting and I feel a little bit like, um, I'm betraying a little bit because I go to the political meetings, but I don't feel identifying to any one political party. Mm-hmm. And this lady was going off about high density housing and how that shouldn't be in our neighborhood. And I was like, well, where do you propose they go? And she's like, well, we can't have it in our neighborhood. And that's going to hurt our crime. And then I'm like, hey, here's an idea. How about if we bring these kids into our neighborhoods, these families that we see are being distressed And we bring that as close as we can to our kids. Won't that change those kids' lives? Won't that give them a different option? And I kind of shut her up because I'm kind of bold, you know? Mm -hmm. And everyone was kind of like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so everybody ignored her, you know, despair about high-density housing because I'm like, you are just proving my point. And it proves what changed my life because I grew up in different circumstances, but I had neighbors that exposed me to God and everything like that. So I, I love this mirroring of our stories in the lessons that we learned, but the circumstances being different, Mm -hmm. the, the forms of abuse or whatever, but that how you have taken that, that concept of exposure. And what if everybody was like, Hey, that distressed kid. And they went and took them from New Jersey to Iowa right? Like you're mm-hmm. or West Virginia, like you're in West Virginia to Iowa, right? Like to Columbus, go, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Somewhere yeah. in the middle. So just take them oh. somewhere. Take, just pick the kids yeah. up, take them somewhere, yeah. what show them, everybody... show them better life, period. You know, no matter yeah, where you if, take them. Yeah. What if we all just took a kid or two under our wings? Unless of course you're a pedophile. You know, what if we all did that? You know, what if mm-hmm. every kid was, yeah, I just, just solve all those problems. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, my friend for coming on again. And when I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell you a story of adoption. That's awesome. (laughs) 
<laughs> we'll have you on. Yes. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm, it was always a pleasure to meet with you and, and talk to you. Since we're such old friends. Yes, of course. <laughs> I think it's still so funny that I forgot we hadn't been in person together, but we've had deeper conversations than sometimes the people you live two doors. I mean, not me. I go around and have deep conversations with everybody. And that's the whole point of this is encouraging people to do that. But um, thank you for giving of your time again and inspiring us with how people can, how you can. Awesome. Thank you, Shahar, for coming on this episode of Share Your Hot. You, you said my name wrong again. <laughs> Shara, 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 like Sarah, but Shara. Yeah, Shara, thank you for coming and sharing on this episode of Share Your Hotness. See what I did there? Yes. Shara, yes. sharing, share yes. your hotness. See, it's so good. <laughs> Thanks for Feel having me. Feel free to call me Lita. Because <laughs> it's Lita, because we unified. <laughs> You're awesome. Thank you, Shara. All right. Thanks. The Share Your Hotness podcast is produced by Van Garrett Media. Lita Green is the host and creator of the podcast. Chris Van Garrett is the editor, producer, and music director. Shayla Dawn is our research coordinator. Join us next week for another episode of the Share Your Hotness podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media.